Welcome to the Modern Carnivore Podcast, a guide for those interested in hearing more about hunting, fishing, and other paths to eating more responsibly. Now, here's your host, Mark Norquist. Hey everyone, and welcome to this new episode of the Modern Carnivore Podcast. Today we're going to be talking turkeys, and more specifically turkey hunting, in that this week marks the start of the spring turkey hunting season here in Minnesota. Uh, But no matter where you're at in the country, for the most part, you should have opportunities to be able to go turkey hunting anywhere between March and May of the spring season. Here in Minnesota, the uh, season starts April 15th and goes through the end of May. And then there's also a fall season that occurs in October. But the spring season is really the popular time uh, for a lot of people to get out. You're able to call and interact with the birds. And uh, I've heard about it for years, but I've never gotten out myself. So I'm really excited about this. Here's the only exception. If you live in Alaska, Alaska is the one place that does not have a turkey hunting season. So everyone else, get on out there, learn about it, try to harvest a turkey. Everybody living in Alaska, come on down and and, uh, join us for the spring season. So um, what I think is going to be really neat about about this, this spring turkey hunting season is it's obviously very unique in that there aren't a whole lot of hunting activities that occur in the springtime. Most everything's in the fall. And I think it's going to provide an opportunity to shake off the winter cobwebs, get some fresh air. It also occurs here in Minnesota at the same time that ramps are coming up, fiddleheads, morels. Uh, so a lot of foraging that can be done at the same time. So you get a little double duty. And so, uh, you're going to learn today about turkey hunting and how it works. So our guest is Mark Strand. Mark's a friend of mine I've known for many years. He's a, an outdoor writer, a photographer, a filmmaker. Uh, but most importantly, he's been hunting wild turkeys for 41 years. And that's across 17 states, including Hawaii. He's also hunted turkeys in several regions of Mexico And as a result, he's been able to harvest all six species and subspecies of turkeys. The way he does that is he generally, a lot of years, heads south in the spring, in March time frame, and works his way north as the turkey season uh, goes on. He's going to talk today about his mentor, Ray I. Ray is a gentleman from Missouri who has been called the uh, country's premier turkey hunter. And so he's going to share with us a lot of those insights that Ray passed on to him. Now, here's the cool part. Once you listen to this podcast, you hear Mark's perspective on turkey hunting, um, you can actually head over and get an in-depth course from Mark and Ray I at huntingcamp.live. This is a, a website we just recently launched from Modern Carnivore. And it will become your classroom for really learning all kinds of hunting, fishing, and foraging skills. And we're launching it with this content for turkey hunting. And this spring of 2020, when we're all dealing with this COVID-19 situation and a lot of people are being stuck at home, we're providing free access to all of the turkey hunting content. 
So we've got out there a webinar we did, uh, which was Introduction 101 to Turkey Hunting. Uh, we we actually had a had a bird uh, that that Jamie Carlson in that webinar um, skinned out and and made made a meal out of and so you get to understand the anatomy of the bird as well as calling strategy um, where where the bird's going to roost what are the things that you need to consider when you're going out into the woods or into the areas near you for turkey hunting then the next episode we did or the next webinar was a deeper dive on calling and roosting of birds. And we were fortunate enough to have Ray I join us for that one. So you're going to get really some of the best education and guidance on calling and roosting turkeys from Ray. And then over the coming weeks, we're going to be launching more in there. We're going to do a scouting uh, content. We're going to do some other things that are going to be of interest to you. So if you are stuck inside, oh wait, we all are, <laughs> um, go out and check out the turkey hunting co- content at huntingcamp.live and we'll put a li- link in the show notes of the uh, of this podcast also. And then uh, get yourself out there and, and, and try turkey hunting yourself. Okay, today I am joined by my good friend Mark Strand. Welcome to the Modern Carnivore Podcast. I am excited to be on the co- podcast because I'm a fan of it too, you know, and I'm a fan of the organization and its mission. So thanks for having me. Well, you, I'm a fan of your work. You, uh, you and I met years ago when you had an organization called the School for Outdoor Sports. Yep. Which had a very similar mission to what we do with Modern Carnivore. Very close. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. introducing people to, to the outdoors, and you're still doing that, and have been doing that for a long time. Why, why don't you give let people know maybe just yeah what's your what's your background in in this outdoor world? Sure. So I grew up in a family. We had five kids in my family. We lived in Minnesota, and. It was because of my dad and other members of our family, but we were what you would call a generalist's uh, group of people where we chased after whatever kind of fish or game just happened to be in season at the time. And it evolved over time too, but you know, as soon as the ice went out, we were fly fishing for bluegills and then pretty soon we're chasing bass and then we're chasing walleyes and we got into musky fishing. <laughs> and the one that we raised and trained hunting dogs and we were entered field trials and we uh, managed land for habitat and we hunted birds and you know uh, just crazy after everything as the season changed I went to the University of Minnesota the journalism school there and I got a minor in fisheries and wildlife science with the intention of the dream being that I would get into the outdoor industry as a media member and cover these sports because that's what I grew up doing. That's what I love to do. And I started freelancing for magazines in 1977, and I've literally been at it ever since. So it's I know, something 44 years, maybe something like that. So. <laughs> that's a lot of years in the outdoor, my friend. Yeah. So I still love doing it. And just like you and a lot of other people that we know, there did come, you know, they always talk about the evolution of, of your life as a hunter and as an angler. And it, it 
literally happened for me where I became far less interested in myself actually pulling the trigger on an animal or me being the one who catches the big musky or whatever the case may be. And it just, it's what drives me now when it comes to hunting and fishing is taking other people, even if they've been doing it for a long time, but maybe they haven't been as successful as they would want to be, or they're just getting started. That's, that's what's fun for me now is to help them get close enough to an animal to at least get a shot at it. (laughs) Whether they get it or not at that point is up to them and, and at least get bites from fish and get them hooked. And if they lose them, I don't, I couldn't care less, but I just want them to have that, that fun of doing that. So that's, that's my story in a nutshell. So we're going to, we're going to talk about turkeys today, but before we, before we go down that path, I guess I want, I want to touch on something that you just brought up. Uh, and that is the generalist versus the specialist. Because uh, I, I consider you uh, very much a specialist in Turkey, but as you just described, you are so much more than that. And I think that's something that, um, I don't know, it's just an interesting conversation point because I am very much a generalist. Same way growing yeah. up as you, it, it was it was 12 months out of the year. You know, at this time of year in spring, you're, you're going out, you're picking mushrooms, you're going fishing, you're getting the dock out of the lake, then you're transitioning from, let's say, panfish and or you did some good early season walleye, but then into bass in, in the middle of summer, et cetera. And as the fish the, change their patterns into the summer patterns you move where you fish right and how you fish for them and yeah and i think there's you know there's so in and i don't think there's any right answer for this but i think that in that way it's more of just a light a general outdoor lifestyle and i think you know a lot of people now might specialize maybe it's turkey maybe it's muskies maybe it's elk uh, and hunting trout out and west, salmon, trout and salmon, you know, yeah, fly exactly. fishing versus spin casting, etc. Yeah. Um, what's your thought on that? As as far as the future of the outdoors and engaging people, I, I mean, I I think generally it comes down to the individual. But do you, do you have a perspective on it? Yeah. No, I, I do because I've thought about this a lot actually. And what I think is most important for each person is that they be given an opportunity to sample a bunch of different yeah. things they're going to know which ones they like best and which ones, you know, I can kind of take or leave. Some people, as as fanatical as the general population is about deer hunting, for example, some people just, they think of deer hunting as something where you sit there and freeze your butt off and you never get to move. And for them, an aspect of hunting where they can walk more appeals to them yeah. deeper or whatever. And, the, and then there's other people who they live 12 months out of the year for the pursuit of big whitetail bucks or something like that. Right, and, right. And, 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 and how they hunt them evolves over time and whatnot. So I think for each person, it is a, it's a personal experience that just listen for it and you'll know what you like to do best and just gravitate toward that. And then, but I would say, you know, go ahead and try, you know, some other things. I'm almost afraid to try certain things because I know I'm going to like them so much. <laughs> like I'll give you one example, uh, predator calling and hunting, like calling in coyotes and foxes and stuff. 
I don't really have enough time to do the ones that I'm already fanatical right. about that I'm I'm almost afraid to try it because I know how much I'm going to like it. <laughs> and then my whole house is going to be full of callers and <laughs> maps that lead me to coyote spots and all that. So, No, I, I agree. I th- there's only so much time. And uh, if you're a generalist to start with, I think most of us fill that schedule up pretty pretty, t- pretty much. But yeah. some people do do what you described where um, some people... They they learn over time. You know, hunting isn't really for me, but I just love to fish, or what, yeah. or, or vice versa. Mm-hmm. Some people, like you say, they might get so into musky fishing that that's all they want to do, and they think about it all the time. And they go to seminars and they watch videos and they sharpen their hooks and they go over maps and they clean out their boat. Now, when they're not fishing muskies, that's all they think about. And so you'll know, I think, in time, you know what aspects of the outdoors attract you and kind of hold your attention no it's a re- i think it's a really good point and i think is a great lead-in to today's discussion um so i've hunted my whole life i've, I've still never been turkey hunting yeah that's amazing because yeah you you we got to fix that i too, know we do way. have to fix that and this <laughs> spring is when i when i want to fix that and change that <laughs> But for me, it's always been growing up north on the, in the heart of the lakes area. Spring was a time when, well, first of all, we didn't have turkeys really growing up. No, not until the late 70s did we have a season in Minnesota. Right, where, right. Yeah. And so, you know, it just wasn't something easy to get, get to. And then, you know, spring was, was fishing. And again, like I say, getting the dock out, just getting ready for summer and, and, and a lot of those activities. So uh, it's been something, it has been, like you say, I've I've thought about it also from the in the context of, ooh, do I really want to do I'm this? I'm almost and afraid to try this. Because, <laughs> yeah, exactly. yeah, right, right. But uh, but definitely, this spring is when I do want to fix it. So uh, we're finally sitting down. You and I have talked about sitting down and talking about this for, for a long time, years. Yeah, exactly. I know you're right. So give me your like high level philosophy of 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 turkey hunting and or your bat why don't you give me your background in because you and i know that mentoring is an important thing um you had a mentor that got you into this right absolutely well my dad was my original mentor because he and his good friend dr gus stays they were both dentists doc stays became an orthodontist and uh the two of them learned that the minnesota dnr was was going to hold the first ever modern wild turkey hunting season in Minnesota in 1978. So in 77, they would have applied for these permits. Very few permits that were given out, 400 and some, I think. Okay. Maybe 426. I can look up that number, but Doc Stays and Doc Strand were two of the of the lucky permit holders for the first season. So as as the two of them were learning more about turkey hunting and practicing calling and whatnot <clears throat> i got into that with my dad too we i used to practice calling with him while he was getting you know ready and and he took a, a bus trip down to southeast minnesota to listen to turkeys wake up and gobble and whatnot came back all fired up about that and my dad actually shot a, a turkey uh, in that very first season 1978 my brothers and i started in 1979 so that's when i started <laughs> hunting turkeys but then I think the the guy that you were alluding to, after any number of years of of uh, there were four of us who my uncle Roger, 
and and myself and Gus and my dad, we used to travel all over the Midwest and hunt turkeys. And we had our, our little unofficial group, and we'd go to all different states, and we hunted on different Indian reservations and whatnot. And we were at this for years, uh, banging our head against the wall, learning by the, the hard knocks. And then I ended up through a, a, a mutual friend named Gary Clancy, who was a very good outdoor writer, passed away a couple of years ago from brain cancer. Just one of the nicest guys ever. He used to hunt with this guy named Ray I, who is a legend among turkey hunters. He's like the dad of the of the professional turkey hunters, you know. Um, he hosted Gary Clancy a few times in one year. Gary couldn't make it, and it was my lucky uh, break that I was actually in North Missouri in my truck with all my stuff packed up, and Gary Clancy calls me and says, hey, uh, if you want to go hunt with Ray I, you can do it, because I can't make it down there, and he, you know, he's spo- I'm supposed to be there like tomorrow or something. So I said, okay. <laughs> so I got his number. I call him from a phone booth. <laughs> okay, this is <laughs> how long ago this was, and I got directions to this old schoolhouse in North Missouri where Ray was holding a camp. Met up with Ray I, knew immediately by watching him hunt, listening to him call, that he was the person I'd been looking for to ask. And I had so many questions, and he talks about this to this day that I used to hold him hostage. <laughs> I would drive us in my truck out into the into the middle of the countryside, and I would pop the tailgate down, and I would make him sit on the tailgate, and I would do, would do what we're doing right now. I'd, I'd start a recorder, and I would ask him, pages of questions that I had and he was like please stop (laughs) but in addition to that I got to hunt with him every year multiple times and just observing him and watching him that's that's why I call him my turkey hunting mentor he's the one who really taught me how to hunt turkeys especially as you go from state to state and country to country and this kind of habitat to that kind of habitat so it, it makes me really wonder, like, what were all those things? And, and each type of hunting has, has different nuances to it. But, um, like, what, what were some of those things you asked him on the, on the, on the tailgate of the pickup truck? Well, one of them was, was something that I think you and I have talked about it a few times. <clears throat> for example, I'd paint a scenario for him. Okay, you get up in the morning, the weather seems good you know that there's turkeys where you're sitting because you had them gobbling there yesterday. You know that they roosted right there because you roosted them there two nights in a row, and it's dead quiet. (laughs) There's no gobbling. There's no hen talk. There's no nothing. You hear the turkeys fly out of the... Because you hear the... As their wings come down, and you hear them land on the ground. I'd even get with them and follow them, and I'm watching them through my binoculars, and I'm trailing with them and I'm wondering why you know what's so different today that they're not talking you know yeah. so I would ask them that question yeah. and, and, and I'd ask them um, uh, how long do you wait at a, at a given spot before you move to the next spot you know right. things like right. that where uh, and, and then so much about calling to turkeys and and I watched what he did. That's where I learned mostly about calling was from watching him call. 
and listening to how he called, but then I would grill him in after the fact, like, okay, you know, it seemed to me that that you really turned up the you know the level of your calling at this certain time. You know, can you tell me why you did that? In some cases, just like great professional athletes, he they don't know. Like <laughs> right. I don't, just, I, yeah. I can't remember what yeah. I did when I did it or whatever. And so, in some cases, it's a matter of me trying to interpret what I think are the reasons that he does things a certain way, you know, and, and that it's literally guided my hunting style ever since I connected up with him. How many years have you known him then? I'm guessing, and we tried to figure that out one time. It's, it's around 25 years, okay. something wow. like that. And we've hunted all over the U.S., literally, you know, Florida, Texas, Alabama, you know, uh, Nebraska, Iowa, <laughs> Minnesota, so, Wisconsin, everything like and Alaska, not uh, uh, Hawaii, and also Mexico. Now Hawaii, <laughs> so, they were. What? How long has Hawaii had turkeys? And they were obviously introduced. Very long at, time. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Eighteen so hundreds. It, I it think. is okay. Yeah. Okay. So it does go back to then. So what is? Uh, um, what's your favorite turkey on? And like, have you? How many? How many different types of, uh, of turkeys have you gotten? So there's six possible. Yeah. That you can get. There's the the oscillated turkey, which is in Mexico primarily. That's the one that sounds like it looks like an ostrich, basically. Yeah, yeah. So, so turkey or something. Yeah, yeah. Right, right, right. Jungles and mm-hmm. the, but they they can also be a creature of edges as well. Okay. The Gould's turkey, which is a a Mexican, more like in the I hunted them in the Sierra Madre mountain range in in more kind of middle part of Mexico, and uh, the Osceola turkey, which is the purebred Osceolas are only found in the southern two-thirds of Florida. Then there's the Rio Grande, which is the turkey that we hunt in Texas and Oklahoma and some other states around there. And then the uh, Miriam's turkey, which is uh, the famous one from the Black Hills, mm-hmm. for example. And then you get them in like uh, uh, Utah, Idaho, New Mexico, you know, places like that. And then in Minnesota... And and all the states through to the northeast and whatnot, there's the eastern wild Mm -hmm. turkey. That's the one that we have right here. So I've shot all six of of those. So it's, you know, eventually... Do you have a preference? I don't think so. Okay. But but I can say one thing about the oscillated hunt, and we don't want to dwell on that too much because not that many people will ever go do that. But that... That was a hunt that initially I viewed as kind of a, okay, check this off the bucket list. And I loved it so much that I can't wait to go back down there and hunt them again. That, it was that cool. The, their call is so much different. They don't gobble. They don't yelp. They sing and they whistle and they make different sounds. Okay. And it's so haunting that when I listened to those boy oscillated turkeys singing, it was like, Oh my gosh! I, you know, a part of me was left down there when I came back up out of the Yucatan. <laughs> it was like I, I I was surprised how much I loved it. Different turkeys, all the rest of them gobble and yelp, and they sound pretty much the same, and they communicate essentially the same to each other. But they do sound a little bit different, and it has, in many cases, to do with the the habitat that they're in. Okay. You know, a fully leafed out forest here in the Midwest. A turkey's gobble is going to sound muffled, and uh, right. it's going to sound like it's farther away than it actually is. Uh, uh, the trumpet of a Miriam's turkey calling on the 
on the plains of uh, of uh, you know South Dakota or you know up in the in the Ponderosa Pines and the Black Hills. That's going to sound different. A turkey in Mexico gobbling off all that rock <laughs> sounds a right. little bit different. You know, like, and the turkeys in Hawaii sounded different also. They're Rio Grande turkeys like what we get in Texas, but they, you know, they're, they're walking on this, this uh, volcanic lava rock. <laughs> so they, they totally gobble and it sounds, yeah. it, it's just, it's, it's a matter of if you took a guitar into all those different rooms, right. so to speak, the, the instrument's going to sound different. Yeah. So that, that accounts, I think, for uh, uh, the difference in the sound to a degree, but it, it's also probably true that a Miriam's, gobble sounds a little different than an eastern gobble okay okay so let's let's uh talk a little bit about somebody who um is relatively new to hunting and uh maybe they've gone out and and and, uh they've small game hunted maybe they've deer hunted uh, or waterfowl but they're thinking about turkey hunting for the first time what are what are some of the initial initial things to to consider? Like what kind of skills would you have to have? Yeah, or, like uh, maybe let's let's talk about let's let's maybe start with when and where to go. Let's start with when in terms of primarily spring season, but also fall seasons. Yes. Um, and so maybe talk a little bit about that and and maybe the bird cycle. The the spring season <clears throat> is the one that most people are going to hunt. The fall season is a completely different subject. Maybe we should talk about that on a, on another Whole other episode. Podcast, yeah, because yeah. there's 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 a lot to talk about there with respect to you hunt them differently than you do in the and and I don't necessarily like the the scatter of the turkey ahead of time. The one thing I'll leave you with right now with respect to the fall season, and and it actually pertains in some cases to the spring season, and I learned this one from Ray I. He says, why would I scare the turkey away first and then try to call it up? How about I just call it up right now? <laughs> so, Absolutely. That's a, why do, it seems logical yeah, to me. And then, and then because it's so funny because in the springtime, when somebody spooks a turkey, or a, we refer to it as being busted by the turkey, and the same thing can be said for deer or whatever, yeah. where the, the turkey sees you or hears you, and it runs away or it flies away or something. In the springtime, so many hunters think, there goes my opportunity. In the And in the fall, they tell us to do it that way. <laughs> okay, first of all, run into the turkey screaming and waving your arms and make them fly in all different directions and then try to call them in. But in the spring, if you do that, supposedly it's a complete disaster and you, you, you have no hope of ever calling them back yet. But getting back to your initial question, for anybody who's just thinking about getting into turkey hunting, you hear this all the time, but it is true. It's easier to get information about how to hunt turkeys than it's ever been. Yeah. You know, literally a, a quick YouTube search can find yeah. what you're looking for, you know. And I, I will put in a plug for Ray I's class. He he did he poured his lifetime into an online class which you can get at midwestoutdoors.com that's great and his course is called calling is everything but it's not just about calling because he he ended up we started out that way he ended up basically spilling the beans of his entire life's 
work. He decided that he got old enough where he wasn't going to save any more secrets. <laughs> and so he, so I think, I think starting with some videos that can help you understand how to hunt turkeys, that's, that's a really big deal. But beyond that, it's a matter of, we hear this all the time in, in turkey hunting circles. What's more important to your success? Calling, can, whether you can call a turkey in or not, or woodsmanship. And to me, I'm always, I've always felt this way. Why are we having a debate over, whether, over which one is more important when, in fact, they're both crucial? Yeah. So what I think is that you should learn how to walk quietly in the woods. The two biggest keys there are don't scrape the bottom of your boots on the ground. Do not scrape the bottom of your boots on the ground. It sounds like fingernails on the chalkboard to turkeys. They don't like it. They will run away from that sound. Lift your feet up. Set them down heel first with what I call muscle control. Resist the weight of your foot touching down on the ground so that it touches down with about the same amount of force as a turkey's foot would if it touches the ground. If you do it that way, you also can oftentimes feel a stick that you're about to crunch. You can rock back on your heel, even in the dark, and you can find a different place to put that foot down. You don't, you don't have to be silent. That's not what we're saying here. Mm-hmm. But you have to learn to walk quietly. Walk quietly in the woods. And as much as you can, don't walk right out in the open. Stay along the edges, almost like you're a little scissors following the edge of the woods if you're on the edge of where there's a bunch of woods and then there's a big green field or something like that. Go inside the woods and work your way along. Try not to let them see you. It's okay if they hear you, but what you want them to hear should sound like a deer or a turkey walking because turkeys live there They listen to deer walking past them every day of their lives. The sound of a deer walking does not scare a turkey. The sound of boots scraping on the bottom, that scares them. So learn to walk quietly. And then beyond that, I think learning how to call turkeys is everything to to being successful. So calling being a big part of the spring hunt. So we're in the middle of March here right now. Mm -hmm. Most of the states uh, that have turkey seasons, March, April time frame. Hawaii is open already and so is Florida. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So starting in the south, eventually be be up here in a few weeks. Yep. Um, Pretty, I mean, pretty uh, straightforward hunt from the standpoint of get a shotgun, get some camo on. Um, a call and uh, and maybe some decoys. Don't necessarily right, but you don't have to use decoys. Okay, they don't hurt you, but they can hurt you. Yeah, yeah. So now Jake's versus Tom's versus you know hens hens on on, on decoys. Okay, let's yeah. talk decoys. Yeah. First of all, <clears throat> I love hen decoys 
of only two shapes. One is the re what they call the relaxed feeding hen that looks like its, its head is kind of dipping down on the ground and, and it's picking insects or whatever it's finding. And a receptive to breeding hen. Boy turkeys are only interested in hen turkeys during the spring mating season. The whole rest of the year, they really don't care whether they become in close proximity to hens. Boy turkeys instinctively understand the body posture assumed by a hen turkey that is receptive to mating. If you show that to a boy turkey, it's very unlikely that he's going to run away from it. He knows what that is, and he'll come to it. Generally speaking, I like to have my hen turkey decoys faced in such a direction that the boy turkey cannot see her eyes until he gets about where, to where I can shoot him. Okay. And, and, and in order to do that on purpose, you have to have some sort of a sense of what direction the turkey is likely to arrive in. And if you hunt turkeys for any amount of time, and that, that it really comes down to probably one day, <laughs> you're going to see that turkeys will circle around you. They'll show up directly behind you. You think they're coming in a certain direction, and they end up coming in exactly the opposite yeah. direction. And they can get they can get really quiet, and all of a sudden they show up and they're not where you thought they were. So you cannot always place decoys in such a way that you can facilitate that. But I like to have the the head of the hen decoy faced away from where I think the turkey, the tom turkey is going to come from. Okay. I want him to come popping out in the open or whatever, and you can see the tails all fanned out, and he's gobbling his head off, and he sticks his head up over the rise, and he looks, and he sees the hen but he can tell that she can't see him yet and how magnificent he looks. And so he needs to keep coming and he needs to get around to the side a little bit to where she can see him. And, and that facilitates, it increases the likelihood that that Tom is going to come close enough for you to get a shot at him. Now, by contrast, I like a sometimes, not always, if I'm going to put out a Jake decoy, I want it to look, rather than looking all relaxed and everything, I would like him to look defiant. I want him yeah. to be upright. I want him to look like he's spoiling for an encounter with this Tom, and I want him to be facing at him when he shows up. So the opposite of how I want to place my hen decoy. I want that Tom to come in. He's gobbling. He's hearing the turkey talk. He sees the, wow, there's a receptive hen. She's ready. Okay, who's that little pipsqueak over there? <laughs> and he's looking right at him. And even when he tries to stare him down, he just the, my Jake Oops. decoy keeps looking right at him like, you want a piece of this? Yeah, yeah. And so that can facilitate him coming all the way in. If you're the only time you want to turn the Jake the other way is if you're archery hunting. Okay. Because it's really helpful if the tur if the Tom will come in and turn all the way around to face the Jake decoy so that his butt is what you're looking at 
as an archer that gives you an opportunity to draw your bow back or raise up, you know, whatever. When the turkey's fan is out and he's got his head going the other way, he cannot see you draw your bow then. And that's actually a great shot to take is right where all the bases of all the tail feathers come together. So that that's, in a nutshell, that that uh, summarizes how I feel about decoys. Yeah. Th- they can, uh, if you feel like you have to put out a decoy every time, you're going to get busted by turkeys some of the time while you're walking right out in the open going to put your decoy out and the turkeys are sitting there watching you do it, that does not help your chances of harvesting a bird. It just doesn't. So uh, you touched on something there. So uh, there's both taking a bird with shotgun and with with a bow or with yes. a crossbow. Now you yep. you have some back issues, and so are you. I hunt like with a, a crossbow. crossbow. Yeah. yeah. And so what what's your what's your thought or preference on shotgun versus versus archery, and and crossbow? Some people who are have been into shooting and hunting for a long time, they know uh, the product called Walker's Game Ear. Mm-hmm. Bob Walker is the guy who invented the Walker's Game Ear. And I knew him because he was a friend of Ray Eyes. I used to see him every year at different hunt camps and whatnot. We got into this discussion with maybe four of us one afternoon, sitting there talking about, you know, where to aim with a with a bow and all that stuff. And... Bob Walker said something that stuck with me, and I don't disagree with it. He said, turkeys are animals that should be shot with a shotgun. (laughs) Because you can shoot from farther away, and it puts them down to stay more consistently. Having said that, if you choose only shots that you feel really confident about making and if you practice with your bow you can kill turkeys consistently with a bow as well you know you go through one of those uh, birds with one of these modern broadheads that they make these days very little chance that that bird's gonna live to see the next day the thing that drives you crazy with archery hunting turkeys is you might stick the arrow all the way through them, but they fly mm. away. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And they land someplace where they become really difficult to find. Right. That's what bugs me. That's what bugs a lot of people who hunt them with archery equipment. That's not a reason to not hunt them with archery equipment. Yeah, yeah, no, that makes sense. So you're going out in the spring, it's mating season, we talked about decoys, um, you touched on calling versus woodsmanship. Um, calling is a big part, a big part of, of, of turkey hunting. What do, you, what do you think of the analogy a lot of people make of, of turkey hunting being similar to elk hunting? Yeah, yeah, well, the... Uh... And I'm not an elk hunter, so it's hard for me to make a great judgment on on how great that analogy is. But I've heard the same thing. I've heard elk bugling in the mountains. I used to live in Wyoming and Colorado and Montana. So it is a phenomenal, it's just a 
a heart shaking sound out right, there in right, the woods, right. right? And um, the gobble of the wild turkey is a lot like that. And so the analogy I think is really a good one because when you're in a hunting situation where you can go out there into the place that these animals live and have an impact. In other words, you can you can cause the elk or the turkey to come over to you because they're completely convinced that you are one of their kind because they've heard that sound before. They know what it is. They know what it means. They come to you and you do that on purpose. It's so interactive. Yeah. It's so, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? It's so fulfilling to cause that to happen that Sometimes, you know, the old joke is you forget to shoot, but you kind of do because (laughs) you're watching this show go on and you get turkeys. Ray talks about it all the time. He says, I want the turkey to be excited. He makes mistakes when he's excited. And uh, one thing I'll toss out there for for calling, um, it's so common to hear people adamant Mm -hmm. about don't over call right. the turkeys right. as long yeah. as you don't yeah. over call right. them right. you're good and so there there's a school of thought that once you get a turkey to answer you you know swallow your call or put it away and don't call anymore and let them come looking for you ray's philosophy on that is i want them to be i want to get them excited i want to get them more excited i want to keep them excited he says, if you feel like stopping the call after you shoot, that's up to you, or else you can keep calling if you want to after that. <clears throat> but I, you know, I almost interesting. Yeah, uh, yeah it, there, there's analogies with musky fishing, yeah. like when you got a musky following your bait, if you stop reeling it in, they get bored and leave. If they if they don't hit it right away on yeah. the on the, or if it floats to the surface and it just sits there, or if it sinks down to the bottom or something, you know, maybe there's a point right away where they might bite it they're not going to bite it if so i believe you got to keep them you gotta you don't let them get bored you get them excited and you keep them excited and you get them to come in excited they're a lot less likely to see you when you get your gun up or you get your bow ready to shoot they'll put up with more noises than and I, in fact, I have one video that shows Ray got these turkeys so worked up. We were in Wyoming. We were right by the Devil's Tower um, on the Black Hills, uh, on the Wyoming side of the Black Hills. He called in these toms, and Linda Powell, who works for Mossberg, she shoots this turkey. She and another guy go out to pick up the turkey and they're kind of skipping and stuff. And instead of running away, there's Tom turkeys continuing to strut. And in the video, you see the two people walking out right by the turkey. The the turkeys that are still strutting, they can see these people walking at them and they are so drunk on their own hormones because he got them that excited before they got there that they didn't run away. 
That's 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 a great. Uh, it's the most dramatic yeah. video of of that type that I've ever seen. Right, right, yeah. No, it, it makes sense, and I think, you know, with so many things, you know, waterfall hunting. I'm not the best. I'm not the best duck caller, and so I'm very skittish about overcalling. You know, blowing them out, and and just, um, and so that's really interesting for you to bring that up and and the importance of of keeping them excited and and i think ray's perspective on that it seems logical yeah whereas the duck commander um i'm blanking on his name right now uh, he played yeah, phil uh, yeah. uh he, he played uh, football with terry bradshaw yeah, in college I forget, <laughs> I forget his name yeah. oh i can't say I, that's making me uh, mad yeah. um so he he always used to talk about how excited you can get the ducks going yeah. he called it chopping them his yeah. chop them son you know like and he used to talk about getting the ducks to break it and you really lean on them as you see them starting yeah, to yeah. break that's not the time to get quiet yeah. like really chop them and get them get them to commit yeah. get their feet coming down and stuff like that and and when you think about calling turkeys it's the same thing yeah, yeah. and and um I want to say this too about turkey calling because this is this is something that I learned the hard way, but Ray eventually said, "Yeah, that's what I do too." You know, as we we have multiple conversations on this. Let's say there's a flock of four turkeys or twelve or twenty-five; it doesn't matter. I call to these turkeys first of all, like a hen, and I, I want the toms to gobble to me. If they don't. I'll talk to them as a gobbler. If I can get them gobbler yelping or gobbling back at me, that's the connection that I'm looking for. If I'm talking to the hens, if one hen will talk to me, I'm going to forget about all the other turkeys in that flock. Hmm. When they make a sound, I don't answer it. Hmm. I engage in a conversation with the one that, that wants to talk to me the most, and I tune out all the other crap, all the other noise, and I talk only to that turkey. With a big group of turkeys in particular, that greatly increases your odds of getting the whole works mm. to come right to you. Mm. It's hard to do that. You have no idea how many times, you, you, if, you, if you just do regular old calling to a group of turkeys, it's highly unlikely that they're going to all fold up and come right to you. But if you engage one turkey in a conversation and keep them talking to you and you couldn't care less whether it's a hen or a tom. Mm -hmm. You couldn't. Because if you get a hen going and she'll come to you and you talk right back to her and you add like 5% to whatever she says you know, and and you get her really going, she starts coming, guess who's coming right behind her? Are you... When you're when you're talking with a specific turkey, uh, are you mirroring the vocalizations, or are you changing it up and doing a specific type of call? I, to... I try to get them to say more than they start out saying, okay. and this is something that I learned from Ray as well. <clears throat> There's some turkeys that like to yelp more than they like to cut. Okay. Some turkeys like to cut more than they like to yelp, or they're just in the mood to do that. And for for people just getting started calling turkeys, yelping is the kind of the natural sound that a lot of people associate with turkeys. So yeah. that's what yelping sounds like. Cutting is like a 
it's a it's putting but it's very sharp sounding and they're and they'll string a bunch of them together pop, 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 like that and so what i try to get a turkey to ramp up what they're saying okay. and to you actually change their level of excitement to where and you'll hear indicators that their level of excitement is going up including the fact that the pitch of their voice gets higher pitched a lot of times they might start out sounding lower pitched but as they get excited they'll they'll get squeaky sounding mm. it's not unlike mm. a person mm. who gets in like a shouting match yeah. or whatever and their voice gets higher yeah you yeah. know what i mean yeah. so i'm trying to influence that one turkey that was willing to talk to me whoever talks first gets my attention i'm going to talk right back to that one Mm -hmm. and see if i can get that bird talking more more often louder more excitedly over time and i'm the one who starts it you have to be the one that kind of initiates it not always because sometimes you'll you'll have a particularly bossy hen or something like that that comes in and just ready to take over the scene and then you pretty much only have to just talk back to her and she's going to come in all the way how often are you successful in you start a conversation with one specific bird and now you've got him him or her engaged is it a, a small percentage of the time is it a is it a higher... uh, to get them engaged or yeah. to actually get them right over where I can see them? Yeah, well, let's let's say yeah, bring them in. I mean, yeah, I would I would say to bring them in. <clears throat> um, if you had to think back on the percentages, you know, maybe it's thirty percent, okay, something okay. like that. Yeah. yeah, because you'll you'll get there's there's a variety of reasons that any given turkey, even when he or she answers you, won't come all the way over to right. you. Right. They there might be a physical boundary between you and them that they don't feel like crossing, even though they could do it easily. In yeah. a lot of cases, <laughs> there, there's a, they've got hens with them. Like maybe it's a tom, you can make him gobble, but he won't come. Uh, he might have two hens with them that aren't saying anything, but he's already got the hens with him, so mm-hmm. it's harder to get him to come over to you. There's, there's all these various reasons that. Uh, he or she, the, the turkeys are headed in a certain direction that they go every day, and they're and they're gonna they'll talk to you while they're on their way out there, but they're not, you know, you know, not in not every case can you get them to change their travel plans. Calling is the thing that's mo that it's the only thing that will actually get a turkey to change its travel plans, but it doesn't work every time, and so you have to read those situations, and it does take experience in some cases to get a sense for oh. Hey, gobbled and then he gobbled he was farther away and he gobbled he's farther away again i need to get up right now and go you know around the back stay hidden from i need to get ahead of where he is and so now i might be crow calling to him or something as i'm working my way along just to make him gobble so i can chart his progress and know where he is and then get out in front of him stop and then start calling back to him as a turkey again now I'm suddenly where he's headed anyways, and so my calling becomes that much better. You're suddenly this great turkey caller if you're, <laughs> if you're where he wants to go anyways. <laughs> so you bring up an interesting point maybe talk about for, for listeners, uh, um, locator calls. 
So yes, uh, yeah, and maybe share what that is and and how that works. Yeah, so we do owl calling a lot. So the the concept of what what we refer, refer to as locator calls is that, and this is particularly true in the spring, but not not universally true. It it can be true in other seasons of the year as well. But gobblers are ready to gobble, and they will gobble at loud noises of various types in in there you know it's it's well known for example when you're roosting turkeys if you're if you're a ways off from them you can just slam the door of your truck really high as loud as you can and then listen carefully and you in that thus the loud sound of the door slamming will cause the turkey to gobble we, we make the sound of of various types of owls Pileated woodpeckers, that sound will make them gobble. Crow calls will for sure. So you can use, I'd say crow calling and owl calling are the two most commonly used. It's a type of sound you make that causes the turkey to gobble. And so you can do it in the morning when you're trying to figure out where turkeys are roosted if you have not roosted them the night before or whatever you know Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. we use use those types of calls to to make them gobble so how about um with turkey calls you got diaphragm you got box calls you got slate calls do you have a preference do you use all do you use one i do i use all of them okay yep and uh i would say well most people are going to say that a box call is the easiest right. call to yeah, learn how to that. use. I personally think it's a slate call. You know, yeah. you, you, you can call it a slate call, even though the call might be made out of glass. Mm-hmm. It might be made out of titanium or aluminum. There's all these different uh, materials that they make the, the calling surface out of. Uh, generically, we might call them a pot and peg call. Uh, the peg is referring to a usually made out of wood. We call it a striker. And you take the striker and you make, with friction, you make contact with the calling surface. And then you can replicate the sounds of a turkey. The box call, you hold on to the, the base of it and you move the paddle across one side or the other. And then you can replicate the sounds of a turkey when you're starting out, well, I don't care how, how much you've been hunting. There's also what we call them push button mm-hmm. calls where push button calls are amazingly realistic sounding and probably the easiest one to learn how to use. You, you just push on a button. And you can, <laughs> you can make it easier and then that. pop, 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 pop with, you know, okay. hit it, hit it real sharply okay. to make a, a cutting call with, a, with, uh, with the, uh, the, peg that you're pushing mm-hmm. on so uh, they call them push button calls and you'll see them in the in the sporting goods stores or online wherever you're shopping and that's that's something to potentially get hmm. i will say regardless of the type of call i like calls that are made out of wood better than i like the ones that are made out of plastic mm-hmm. i think they sound more real mm-hmm. i think you get a better response from the real see uh real wild turkeys 
they don't care how hard you've been practicing your calling or how little you've been practicing your calling. They don't care what your call is made out. They don't know anything about any of this. They only know whether you make a call that causes them to believe it's a turkey making the sound. So, and then when it comes to mouth calls, that they're probably the most difficult yeah. type of call to master. But the good thing about it is you can keep talking to the turkey when you have both hands on your bow or your shotgun, yeah. and particularly as the bird gets in tight, mm -hmm. and you can lean on them a little bit. You can there's little calls that I use to get them to poke their head out from behind the trunk of a tree or uh, lift it up above a bunch of brush that they're in or something, which gives me a shot. Uh, so I, I do I do some calling on that. It's kind of a expectant putting, mm -hmm. and roughly translated, it means uh, I can hear you. I think I, I should be able to see you, but I can't see you. Where are you? <laughs> and so they go right here, you know, and then, and then boom. <laughs> you know, so yeah. th th there's, uh, and that's easier to get away with if you have a mouth call in your hand because right. when you go to make that call, you're probably within like 30 yards of yeah. this turkey. You just can't see him mm -hmm. at the moment. Mm -hmm. you know. So you got to get him to stick his head out where you can see it. How about um, other other gear? So so you're, you're going out you know, for, for a hunt. You're, you're sitting against the base of a tree. Uh, you know, where the, a tree is available. Where a tree is <laughs> yeah. available. That's true. That's true. Uh, these vests have become popular. I'm sure I hear people ask that all the time. Do they have to have one of those with the cushions on them? You don't have to have it. Yeah. No. Yeah. I yeah. I personally like a vest. Mm -hmm. I, I I have a one that I like that has a stadium seat type uh, deal. There's only one that I found that actually won't cave in if you don't have a tree to lean against so okay. um i have one particular blind that i make myself that i can sit in but it doesn't have uh any chairs or anything in it and so you sit you have to sit on the ground inside okay. of it and I, I like having that stadium seat because it gives me a back rest right right and i'll mention it because it's the only one i know that actually does this it was made in the old days uh i forget the name of the company but uh Bass Pro Shops bought it, so it's a Redhead. So Redhead okay. is one of the brands of Bass brand. Pro Shops. Yeah. I believe it's still called the Bucklick Creek Turkey Vest. Okay. It's the only one I know that if you lean, I have to repair it. I've got my the one I've been using lately. It's got uh, uh, holes where the stakes will pop out after a while you know if you use them a lot then yeah. stuff goes yeah. wrong so i have to stitch them up every once in a while but yeah. that that's the one i i like a vest ray ray i never wears a vest he, yeah. he sometimes brings a backpack he sometimes doesn't hardly bring anything and he just sits on the ground you know he's and he'll lay on the ground and just kind of like call from land you know i look over at him and he's he's got his elbow on the ground his hand behind his back he looks like he's posing for a <laughs> centerfold of cosmopolitan or something <laughs> um so you don't have to have a vest i think it's nice to have the pockets sure to bring your stuff and you know calls and everything yeah how about you you mentioned a blind how about a blind is that is that is that a good thing an important necessary element or not really if you have a hard time holding still it's probably a necessity okay 
but I will say that going out and sitting in one place in a blind with decoys out has almost become the de facto way to hunt turkeys in this day and age. And that's a very recent development. And to me, that would be the same thing as going out in your boat on the lake and dropping the anchor down and then casting to the same spots for the whole day. So, yeah. so It's so, an anchor also. A blind yeah. is an anchor unless it's really... Uh, it, I'll make an analogy to ice fishing. So Dave Gens is a guy that's really well-known up in here in our part of the country. He invented a fish house called the Fish Trap where instantly you can flip open the fish trap, grab the rope, and you're on your way to the next spot. But if you bring a whole bunch of crap with you yeah. and it weighs too much to easily pull across the ice, you're going to decide that wherever you are at the moment is the best place on the lake and you're going to sit there for the whole time. So if you go out in a blind and you set it up like it's a two-bedroom apartment, you're not going to move yeah. even though you're not hearing any turkeys, you're not seeing any turkeys. So the blind can become an anchor and that can cause you to not get a turkey because you're less adventurous. You're not going out after them. You're not trying to find, okay, there's no turkeys right here. Either that or they're not talking. So let me say this, though, this, and this is pretty important. We talked earlier about how some days turkeys are really quiet. If you've scouted a certain spot quite a bit and you have good reason to believe that there's turkeys right in a certain place whether they're making any noise at all or not then being in a blind is deadly stick it out stay there keep calling even if they don't even if it's pouring rain or what just keep calling and a lot of times turkeys are just going to, all of a sudden, they show up. They, they, you didn't hear them coming. They weren't there two seconds ago, and now here they are. You, you fall asleep, and you wake up, and there's a tom strutting in your decoys. <laughs> you know, like, if you believe that there's turkeys in a certain area, particularly on a really windy day, or a day where the turkeys are just not talking very much, that's not the day to go stumbling around through the woods. All you're going to do is keep moving them away from you the whole time. In the case like that, if you know that there's birds around, anchor. You want to put your anchors on in that case <laughs> and keep calling so that they know you're there and eventually, uh, you, hopefully, a turkey will show up. Being in the blind allows you to get away with movement while you're waiting for them to show up. So let's say you haven't scouted the area. You're going in cold. Uh, you're sitting there for a couple hours, haven't heard anything. You don't know whether it's the right spot or not. Do you move? Yes. <laughs> and I'll make the ice fishing analogy again. Dave Gens. Yeah. Uh, I've done a lot of stuff with him since the mid-1980s, and so I know him really well. He said what's my favorite thing, favorite thing about this, because he gets asked, how long should I fish in a certain hole before I drill more holes or I go to a different spot? And he said, it all depends on 
how long does it take to catch nothing? (laughs) So how long does it take to not hear or see any turkeys before you decide whether you should move or not? The, The scenario that you pointed out you're in a place and you don't know any. You don't know about these what these these local turkeys. You don't know if a turkey has set foot in the place that you are for the past five years. For all you know, there's no turkeys for a half a mile. Don't sit there in one place. And and this is what we do all the time when we travel. And I go to all different states and hunt turkeys. And it's one of my favorite things is to go to a place I've never been to before. Because now I get to figure out the whole thing. Where do these turkeys roost? What do they eat? Where do they go during the day? What what kind of groups are there? Who's the big hotshot gobblers that I would really like to target or whatever? And so you got to find all that. And you cannot find that if you go to one place and set up a blind and sit there. You have to cover ground and look. You're looking for tracks. You're looking for multitudes of tracks you're looking for roost sites where there's turkey poop and feathers on the ground and everything you're calling and you're listening so that you can hear turkeys calling you find out where they are and you get up there and you can look at them and see who they are and, and what they're doing and watch which way they go so when we go to a new place like that i call it scout hunting so we, we're hunting and scouting at the same time because you don't get to go there ahead of time. And I will talk to the, like, a, let's say it's a rancher and we, we talk that rancher into letting us hunt and he'll let us set up a tent and camp on his back 40 or whatever. And then if you ask them where the turkeys are, and I'll give you one great example from, I forget where we were, but this guy said, here's all the turkeys are out in this back green field and he, he walked us around to the back of his house and I see a, a, a two rocking chairs set up in a screen porch and there's big piles of newspapers and stuff like that and so I said so it looks like you like to sit out here in the oh yeah my wife and I we sit out here in the evenings and, and in the afternoons when I'm taking my break and so from his screen porch in his rocking chairs, it was the only place that he could see. And the other parts of, of his farm that had turkey habitat on it, he could not hear a turkey that gobbled from there, even if he was really young with good ears. And so that's why he thinks that's where all the turkeys are, because that's the only place that he looks. Yeah, right, <laughs> so right, right. don't bank on the 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 farmer or, or whoever to tell you where the turkeys are in some cases if they're really out and about and they're and they're very observant then you'll get great intelligence from them but just don't rely on it yeah. you got to do the work yourself you got to get out there and and find out where those birds are and where they go during the day and where they roost and what they do You've talked about, uh, I've heard you give presentations uh, on on turkey hunting, and you've talked about uh, reading the snood. And so I think maybe let's let's talk about, okay, somebody's out hunting, they've they've been calling, they got some decoys out, they got the bird coming in now. What's, uh, let's describe that, that situation. Yeah, so the snood on a turkey, and if you look, if you look it up, you can 
just look at turkey pictures online or whatever and you'll see this fleshy kind of a protuberance or whatever you want to call it it's a, it's a little thing that grows on the side of their head and it can be either on the left or the right side of their beak when they're relaxed when they're not alarmed it will hang down and loose and it's long and relaxed you can see it when they flip their head side to side, you'll see it kind of flopping in the wind and whatnot. Whereas, when a, when, and we're talking a gobbler now. This is a boy turkey, a tom turkey, not a hen. That, whereas when that same tom turkey becomes alarmed by something, here's a sound that it doesn't like or whatever, that snoot will just like... In an instant, it shrivels up to nothing, and it's and it's a little, it's a little short thing that sticks up straight off the top of their head. So I like to look for the snood when the when the tom turkey is coming, and if I have plenty of time, I'll look at them through my binoculars from a distance and just kind of see, you know, how many are they, uh, what are they doing, how many hens do they have with them, you know, et cetera, et cetera. If it's, it, especially if it's just one tom turkey by himself, I am looking at that. And as long as that snood is hanging down relaxed, it's unlikely that that bird's going to get spooked by, you know, it's, in other words, it's not on edge. It's coming. It's relaxed. It feels good about what's going on around it. It doesn't feel alarmed. And that will give you confidence to, like you don't have a great shot at him right now. He's kind of on the edge of your range, you know, whatever. You, if you're hunting with a bow or a gun, it, it's a little too far or it's kind of an iffy shot. I like to look at that snood. And if as long as it's hanging down there loose and stuff, just keep calling to that bird. Give him time to come closer. He's probably not going anywhere. He's not going to run away from you. But if you have a shot at it, and it's the snood is shriveled up he's acting you know kind of choppy in his movements and stuff like that if he's looking to leave that that will help you decide if i'm gonna shoot at him i have to do it right now or if you and and i would urge everybody if you don't feel good about the shot and he starts to leave like that let him leave set up in the direction that he went and try to call him back to you but don't shoot at him if you don't feel good about the shot but you brought up something that's that's pretty important i I like to watch that snood it gives me an indicator of whether he's on edge alarmed heard something saw something he didn't like etc it's a it's an interesting characteristic yeah. of, of the of the bird yeah, it's just for such sure. a, a, a unique thing well we could we could keep going down multiple paths I know. and i think we <laughs> i think we just need to do another conversation maybe even uh uh, do a webinar sometime and have have you share some of the other insights, maybe even some of your videos. Show uh, some with videos, that yeah. Exactly. Actually, show what we're talking about, yeah. And uh, in particular, if 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 you can see and hear uh, the difference between calling to turkeys as a hen versus calling to them as a gobbler, and and what that does, and in what situations, you know, it's 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 a huge topic. It's really cool when you can actually see turkeys 
doing this stuff and the, and it i think it can sink in to to everybody and help them uh be able to shortcut all the years of banging my head against the wall that i did <laughs> well so you recently uh retired from being the editor-in-chief of midwest outdoors right right um and so maybe share with people just a little bit what you're doing now and 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 where they could find your info yeah thank you i'm, I'm i appreciate you asking about that because i started a page on a, a larger site called patreon and P, you, you've probably heard the term uh somebody being a patron of the arts patreon it's patreon.com slash mark strand that's where you find me on this website, basically, I am finally doing these stories that I always wanted to do my whole career but never had time to do them. I like to explore why we go fishing, why we go hunting, what we get out of it, some of the funny things that happen along the way. So I release two brand new stories every month along with uh, in, in most cases, images that help illustrate them. And then I also have a, a, a audio portion where it's kind of like a podcast where I talk about some of the things that I'm working on and, and uh, more details of some of the stories and show some pictures uh, that go along with some of that. And then also videos where, where I talk about writing and the writing process, um, get into, uh, I'm going to have guests on you know, where some of these people that I've interviewed for my whole life and get them to come on and talk about what they love about hunting and fishing. So if, if you're interested, if you enjoy kind of that old fashioned storytelling that used to be the linchpin of outdoor magazines in the old days, and this has almost completely disappeared. I really want to bring that back. And and it, I would I would welcome other writers who feel the same way to come come do something similar to this because I think there is an appetite. There's a whole new generation of people who are just awakening to the fact that their body yearns for this connection with nature and getting out there on the landscape and learning how to hunt, learning how to fish, actually getting your own food bringing it home and and eating it it's all it's exactly what the modern carnivore concept is and it's all about what my page on on patreon is i i love it and you've shown me a little bit of of what you got on there and i i think it's great and i do think people have an appetite for it and and i'd love to see it it come back and and uh We'll make sure that we put a link on the notes page uh, to that so people can find it if you just go Thank to, the, to yeah. the, the web page. Otherwise, again, patreon.com forward slash Mark Strand. Yeah, M-A-R-K Strand. Yep. Great. Well, we're going to do this again soon and talk more turkey. And I really it's appreciate a, there's it. There's a never-ending uh, <laughs> line of conversation about turkey hunting, and it's yeah. it's just true. There There's so many elements to it. There's so many nuances. Yeah with turkey hunting so thanks for having me on though it's been a while like you say that we've been talking about doing this absolutely no i'm glad we're finally doing it so we'll uh, we'll do it again soon thanks mark you're welcome thank you so i hope you enjoyed today's conversation with mark strand talking turkeys and if you do want to 
do a deeper dive on turkey hunting and learn more about it, make sure you head on over to huntingcamp.live and we're giving everyone a free pass for turkey hunting content here during the spring 2020 hunting season. Uh, we're all stuck indoors and we want to make sure that people have uh, something interesting to do. So uh, during this COVID-19 season, go out there, check it out, watch the webinars, learn about turkey hunting, and then get outside if your state allows it. Make sure you check with your local regulations during this time and how the uh, laws are situated around your hunting and fishing activities. Also, make sure that you check out the other Modern Carnivore podcast called Outdoor Feast with Todd Waldron. Next week, we're going to be pushing out a new episode, and Todd sits down with Nicole Qualtieri. Uh, Nicole used to manage social media for Backcountry Hunters and Anglers, and she's now the hunting and fishing editor of Gear Junkie. Uh, Nicole's a great personality, and I'm sure they had a lot of fun in their conversation, so you'll want to listen in. Thanks for listening to the Modern Carnivore Podcast. You can continue the journey by going to modcarn.com.